Now, for those of you that are visiting today, what I want you to know is we're family. This is a family atmosphere. This isn't church as usual. We're here not because we're trying to tickle an itch, our, our Sunday morning Christian religious itch. We're here because we do life, and we're here because we need hope and answers and promise for the future. We're here because we need each other. We need communion with the Lord and intimate fellowship and communion with each, with each other. We're here because we're building community, a common unity. We're here because God has called us into relationship not to do life alone. He doesn't want us isolated. He's called us to be a body. You cannot say, I have no need of the body. You can't just isolate yourself and say, I'm a Christian and I'm part of the church. If you are not in community, you're out of the will of God. Because God's will everywhere is in community in the Bible. Everywhere. Jesus built a community. Jesus empowered a community. Jesus raised up and sent and said, go build community. You've got to understand that. It's unfortunate that so much of man-made religion has gone astray and gone awry. It's unfortunate that, that pastors have set bad examples. And it's unfortunate if you've been hurt. Most of us have in one way, shape, or another. Or most of us have been turned off by dysfunctional religion. It's time for us to get over that, and it's time to realize it's a new day. And if you want to see change, you become the change. If you want to see something different, you don't walk away, run away, and leave. Instead, you say, I want to change, Lord, because I want to be infectious. Everybody say infectious. God's called you to be infectious. The only way to overcome a snake bite is with its own venom in the sense that you now become a virus that infects the devil's camp and brings life and love. When he's infected God's people, you do a ninja flip on it and you bring life to the enemy's camp. Now, you need to understand that 2 Corinthians 12, 12 says, when a minister speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. Oracles are prophetic utterances. And then he says, let a minister as God gives the ability. Gives the ability is epichoriego. It means a transposed choreograph from the Lord. Um, that's a Greek word. I'm sure I'm not saying it right. But my Greek relatives that are here, why don't you all stand up, my Greek relatives. These are my Greek relatives from New Jersey, my two aunts, my uncle, and my cousin. Now, the problem with them being here is that they know Greek way more than I do, and they can one-up me. You need to understand, I'm gringo Greek. I speak gringo Greek because I wasn't taught it when I was a kid. But, you know, when I speak Greek, it's all Greek to you. Like that? So they correct me. That's, I say the word, they tilt their head, and they go, no, no, you say it this way. <laughs> this morning, I'm going to teach a message, and I'm going to have to make it brief and short, and that's okay because I know it really well. Just listen along, follow, and I encourage you to take notes. Now, if you just want to pay attention and not worry about notes or everything that I'm saying or have to overly read, we record these messages, and you can hear them all on our Rock City app, which is on the I iPhone for Apple products or on SoundCloud if you have an Android, okay? Title of my message today is Learning to Love, and it's the first part of a two-part series because there's no way that I can get all of the understandings about love in one message. Can't even really do it in two, but I am sure going to try, okay? This message is in honor of my mom, and many, many years ago, before I came to Tulsa, about, oh, I don't know, 13, 14, 15 years ago, 
I preached at a church in Tulsa, my home church there, and I taught this message titled Learning to Love. And I sent it to my mom on CD, and it was really her all-time favorite message. And she would always ask me, I really want the learning to love, see, love message, but I couldn't find it. It's somewhere on an old hard drive somewhere. I don't know where it is. And yesterday, we celebrated my mom's life, which is why my family is in town. It was a wonderful memorial service. I'd like to say thank you to Marlene Villarreal for her hard work and all the volunteers for all that they did. Thank you so much for serving so well yesterday. So I'm preaching this message, learning to love and honor my mom. And I'm going to start out with two quick stories. I'm going to be extremely personal and vulnerable today. Very personal and vulnerable. But to really put this message into perspective, I have to be. And I'm not afraid to be. Because what you need is a transparent pastor. And what you need is somebody that can identify and sympathize and isn't afraid to be real. Because I love you and I hope that you come back. But what I care more than anything is that you get a word from the Lord and you get transformed yeah. wherever you go. And so after I got out of jail, for those of you that are visiting, uh, 25 years ago, I went through a hurricane, 25 years this year, Hurricane Andrew, Category 5. I got busted for drugs. I wound up spending a year in prison. When I got to prison, I became a tutor of illiterates, and all I did was teach illiterates how to read, and all they wanted to know was how to read the Bible. And so for a year, I was held captive in Bible school without all the distractions. That was a beautiful thing for me. And so I spent so much time immersed in God's word and getting my life transformed when I, got, when I spent that year in prison. And if you haven't heard my testimony, you can go online and hear it on the app on the Rock City podcast. 10 years later, I went before the same Greek judge. He wiped my record clean. My record was completely expunged. And you can also hear the story on my last week's Easter message. I, to I told it in depth, in detail last week, probably the most in depth I ever taught it. So I'd encourage you to go back if you weren't here last week. After I got out of prison, I went right back to Miami. I grabbed my mom and I said, mom, you need to give your life to Jesus. You need to be born again. And she said, okay, it was about that easy. She was my easiest convert. And so we kneeled down on the side of the couch and we prayed and she gave her life to Jesus. Her life was forever transformed. And one of the things that I want you to know is when you give your life to Jesus, you are born again in your spirit, but God has to work on your soul realm because you have an entire life of world normal, spinning out for yourself, living life your way, drugs, alcohol, broken relationship, burned bridges, belief systems, things that you were raised and taught as a child. I call it world normal, but when you get born again, you get kingdom normal. And God wants you to understand the difference between world normal and kingdom normal. And so my mom had had a lifetime of belief systems and mindsets just like all of us do. And when you get born again, the Holy Spirit now comes to begin to work on your soul realm. He begins to work on your lifetime of world normal because you've had a lifetime of belief systems and mindsets about God and about others in your own life. So now the Holy Spirit begins to work in your soul realm and the Bible says that God perfect, perfects us he sees us as perfect, but he's sanctifying us. So the word for sanctification means that God is separating you. He's transforming you. He's working on you. And that's why you must be in a community that understands process. And you need to be in a place that doesn't have religious dysfunction that makes you feel worse, but says, come on, get up, pick yourself up, speaks life into you and propels you towards your destiny. Yeah. That's why you can never give up. 
And the process of sanctification comes from the Holy Spirit at work in your soul realm. And so bitterness and unforgiveness and a whole lifetime of belief systems, now you have to change the way that you think. You have to renew your mind. And the only way that you get your mind renewed is by spending time with the Lord and allowing the Holy Spirit to work in your life. Not going to church, not being more religious, not giving, falling prey to a man-made system of religion. It's becoming something great and allowing the Lord to work on those issues in your life. That's why I teach you about spending time with him, hearing his voice, enjoying intimacy, learning what it means to read your Bible and to hear his voice at the same time. You know, there's times I go to get with the Lord and I go to spend time with the Lord and the Lord tells me, don't read your Bible right now. Now, if you got a religious mindset, you're gonna go, huh, I don't understand. There's people that read their Bible their whole lives and don't know the Lord. Now, you're not gonna know what God is saying until you know what God has said. I read my Bible all the time, two minutes here, three minutes there, four minutes there. I've had have such a distaste for the things of the world. And I'm not telling you that you can't do something you should or you shouldn't. What I'm telling you is what's happening to me. Time is so short that I'm constantly just opening up my phone. We're watching TV last night and I got one eye kind of watching there and I got one eye on the word. Time is short. And there's so much to learn and so much to grow. And if you really want to hear God's voice, you got to get a foundation of God's word in you. Because if you don't have a foundation of God's word in you, then when he speaks, you won't know what he's saying. Or you'll make, it, you'll make decisions and say it was God in God's name or in Jesus' name, and it's completely unbiblical. All kinds of movements out there that call themselves Christians that aren't. I love using the KKK or the Westboro Baptist Church. They call themselves Christians, but they do everything contrary to God's word and what God's word says, and they give real Christians a bad name. So when I get with the Lord, God, I read my Bible all the time, understand that, and this is more of a maturity thing, and please don't take it out of context. But when I get with the Lord, there are times that the Lord says, I just want to talk to you right now. I want your attention. I want you to commune and meditate with me. And I said, well, no, I'm going to read my Bible. And I just open it up and I could read it in revelations about dragons and horns and serpents. And I could turn to the Old Testament and read about David chasing down Philistines and cutting off foreskins. And I go in a whole nother direction than what God may want me to go. When you read your Bible, you've got to learn to be spirit led and divinely inspired in your Bible reading. Ask the Holy Spirit to open his word to you and be divinely led when you read the word and ask the Lord to breathe upon you, Okay. And so what I really want more than anything is that you get empowered and activated and challenged and transformed when you walk out of this place. And so when I sat down and prayed with my mom, my mom had gambling issues. She would go every night to the casino. I told this story yesterday, but she'd go every night to the casino. And I was living with her and we had a roommate and we gave my mom the money for rent. And instead of paying the rent, she went and gambled it away. And then the next day she lied and said that her purse had gotten stolen in a Walmart parking lot. So my roommate says to my mom, hey, I'm going to go wash and clean your car. She didn't think twice about it. She go, my roommate goes to clean the car, and then in the trunk, he finds her purse. She completely lied. I was going to an all-black church at the time. My pastor, Winston Williams from Jamaica, we are going to bring him here one day. He, was, he loved me well. He wasn't perfect. He made some mistakes in my life. I fully forgive him and love him, and I think he's a wonderful man. We're going to bring him here one day. But I drove up to church, a tear in my eye. I was so upset. I'd been listening to worship, but I was very angry at my mom. And I got out of my car and the pastor looks at me. He goes, what's going on? I said, man, I've just been having a good time with the Lord of worship. He goes, no, there's something else going on with you. I said, well, my mom did this and this and such and such. 
and I'm really angry. And he says, he looks me right in the eyes. He says, you have to love her. Now that's such a simple word, but at that time, you know, when you're angry and somebody's done a great injustice to you, when you don't want to forgive because they don't want forgiveness and they stabbed you in the back and did the most horrendous things to you, it's pretty hard to forgive sometimes. And what he was telling me in that you've got to love her was such a challenging word for me because I now understand that true love is agape love. And I understand that means a sacrificial love. That's what Jesus did. That's the kind of love Jesus had in laying his life down for the church. And what my pastor was telling me was, despite what she's done, you've got to love her. Now, fast forward, I'm going to tell another story on myself, and it's a very personal, private story that I've never told publicly until last service, and I'm going to tell it now. Several years ago, when we got into this facility, I was so excited about everything happening here. We were having services every week, every month, or uh, we were having special speakers every month. I was busy about working hard to build the church. I was very excited about the church. We had one child I don't know if we had Zion or not. I can't remember exactly how many years ago, but it was several years ago. Probably just had Cadence. And I was extremely excited about what was happening here, and I still am. But my wife and I worked through a lot of things. We're two opposite people, and God is the spark sometimes fly, and we both have to learn to lay our lives down, and we love each other, and there's no one else I'd rather be with. She's amazing, and I'm here today because I have such a wonderful wife. But trust me, we're both two strong-willed people. God has a way of working out strong will in your life. And I didn't understand Ephesians 5 about laying your life down. And my wife said to me, I feel like you love the people and the church more than you do me. And I was was basically offended. I said, what are you talking about? I've done so much for you. I've done so much for the family. I love you. And I didn't understand what she was saying, but she was sensing and feeling something. I said, I love you so much. I care so much about you and I'd do anything for you. She said, but I don't feel that way. And I was just upset and I got defensive. And that day I was flying to Colorado to go snowboarding with some friends several years ago. And I left in a huff I got to the airport and I got on the plane and I had my first moment to think. And I started thinking about what she said. I said, man, Lord, I don't understand this. I don't want my wife to feel that way. You've got to understand my heart is to never put ministry before my family. I know too many people have done that. I will not sacrifice my family on the altar of ministry. I don't want that. That's not my heart. But I was so excited about what's happening here. And I said, Lord, I don't want her to feel that way. And the Lord says, you know, she's right. I said, but Lord, I don't understand how she's right. I'm not computing. And the Lord began to show me some things from my childhood. And let me just tell you briefly about my childhood and how this ties in. When I was a child, my mom met a man by the name of Ed Moore who was here yesterday. He's who I consider my dad. We moved to Kansas City, Missouri, where after a short amount of time, my mom decided that she didn't want to stay. My dad fell out of love with her. She went back to Miami, and I was raised by a single father. I had no mother or woman in the home. When I was a child, my earthly father left my mother and I and and spoke abandonment and neglect into me. He wanted my mom to have a divorce, so I was abandoned and neglected. I was orphaned. I had an earthly father come in and orphan me or rescue me. 
And then later in life, I had a heavenly father rescue me. I had a warped perception of healthy relationships because I was not raised in a, in a healthy family. My dad loved me, but there was no Jesus going on in my household as a child. And so women were pawns to get myself, to bring myself comfort. I slept around. I did all kinds of dysfunctional things because I didn't have a healthy, proper perspective and understanding of marriage and even women. But when it came to the church, my love, which hasn't changed, my love for the orphan and my love for the outcast and my desire to rescue people is so off the chart. And so my love and passion towards the people was on fire, but I didn't have a proper healthy perspective in how to love my wife. And that's a powerful word for some of you men here today. I didn't understand Ephesians 5, husbands love your wife as Christ loved the church. And so what would have to happen, and I don't have it all figured out, I haven't arrived, we're still works in progress. But I got the revelation. We stopped having special guest speakers every month. She was pregnant and had Canaan. She remembers that. And so the point was, was that God early on was shifting me. And it doesn't mean my love for you and the people and God's church was wrong. That's right. That's a good love to have, especially for God's bride. But if you're going to properly love God's bride, you better have a proper perspective of your bride. So learning to love is something that must be taught and demonstrated by example. So Jesus would have to teach us how to love properly. And without the love of Christ ruling and reigning in our hearts, without a healthy biblical perspective, we're not gonna get it. And do you know when God spoke that to me, I cried for five straight hours. I cried all, I called her crying, telling her that. I was so broken because God brought light and revelation and thank God he did it. Yeah. I'm not afraid to tell the story on myself because had I not gotten that, and I still, again, had not figured it all out and neither is she, but that's the beauty of marriage is learning how to harness differences and lay your life down for each other, communicate and honor Christ in your marriage. And it broke me. And since that time, I don't want to sacrifice my kids. What I want more than anything is my children, my family. I only get one chance to do this God's way yeah. with my kids. Mm -hmm. And even if you messed it up and didn't do it right, right, even if my word to you today is convicting you, God is a God of a million chances. Yeah. He's the God of the second, third, fourth, fifth, hundredth chance. It's never too late, no matter how old you are. It's never too late. You can always get a new start and get another chance from the Lord. So in learning to love, I'm going to break down some passages of scripture for you real quick, and I'm going to paraphrase them for you. You can write it down and you can go read it. I've read these stories so many times, and they're so relevant. And Jesus would give us the greatest perspective on learning to love and how to love at the Last Supper. One of the oddest of places, of course, laying his life down, dying on the cross, that's the ultimate, coming to earth as a man. I mean, that's all gospel. That's all really the ultimate act of love. But I want us to look at the Last Supper for a minute, and I want you to see how Jesus, in the midst of great opposition and about to lay his life down, majorly distressed at this supper. Disciples are arguing, you got one that's going to betray you, you got one that's going to deny you, and you have 10 that's going to leave you in it 24 hours. All within 24 hours, all 12 of them would have issues. 10 would leave, one would deny, one would betray. 
And Jesus decides to have a Passover meal with them. We call it the Last Supper. We also know it as communion. The problem is our little wafer and our little cup is not the picture of communion that God intended. Now, we still do it at church because it's symbolic and it's a reminder and we come together and we get to talk about it. But the real communion, the common unity that God intended was intimacy with one another. And that's why he would show communion and demonstrate it by breaking bread and doing life together. Beautiful picture of what communion is. So John 13, 1 is such a powerful scripture because in John 13, 1, we read that Jesus was at the Passover. The feast of the Passover was coming. He knew his hour had come. He knew he was about to depart from the world. And what does it say? Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The word for the end in the Greek is telos. Am I saying that right? which is where we get telescope, telescopic. And the point is it's the aim with which you're looking at. It's the limit or the end of something. And Jesus would love to the limit. He would love to the max. Jesus would stick with them all the way to the end, no matter what, and give them every opportunity to become who God wanted them to become. He would never back down and he'd never give up. And so the chapter starts... He knew it was coming. He knew the end was near. And he says, having loved them and loved them to the end, he could see people the way God sees them, not through man's eyes. Man looks at the outside, God said to Samuel when he promoted David, God looks at the heart. So I don't see you for your issues and your dysfunction. I see you for who you are. Now, I understand issues and dysfunctions are there. Fighting in our marriage, screaming, cussing, yelling, self-preserving, all those things are world normal. So what I call you to do is to be who God calls you to be because that's what he did. Now check this out. Verse two is so powerful because in verse two, we get right off the bat, last supper, we get right off the bat that the devil put it in, in Judas's heart to betray him. All deception starts from the enemy planting a seed inside of your heart. Here in just a little bit, we read where, where Peter was officially possessed by Satan at the table. Can't even imagine what that was like. But, but, but Judas had already come to the table with the intent to betray Jesus. The chief priests and the scribes and the temple guard were doing all they can. Every account of the Last Supper, there's four of them. And I encourage you to read every account because every account of the Last Supper gives you a unique perspective on the Last Supper. One tells you that they sang a hymn before they left. One tells you that everybody went around uh, saying whether they were going to betray him or not. You get all these unique perspectives because we need that. When I get a word from the Lord for you, I give you, I might drill the hole. I might start the nail, but you got to go keep pounding that nail and drilling the hole. You got to get the greater revelation for yourself. And so they're sitting at the table and the scripture starts right off that it was already in Judas's heart to betray him. And then Jesus in a little bit, I'm not gonna read it all to you, but Jesus in a little bit would go on to say that the betrayer's at the table and he's already raised his heel against me. And then he'd say, I'm gonna wash your feet. To raise a heel against somebody, think about it in a wrestling term. I'm gonna kick you in the face or martial arts. We use heels in warfare. <clears throat> we also need our heel to bring stability into our life. And that's why even all the way back to the garden, there's the discussion of the heel striking and crushing that the enemy would strike the heel of God's people, but we would crush the enemy's head through Christ. 
So the enemy's always trying to strike your heel because your feet take you to where you're supposed to go. Your feet lead you in a sense, your heart first rises up and then your feet take you there. And that's the point is that Jesus would say, his heel's already risen up against me. And now let's keep reading. Verse 21. Jesus is incredibly troubled. This is like you'd think this be party time, supper. Jesus is about to die. Last meal, heart's troubled. He was very distressed and very troubled. He testified and said, surely the one that's going to betray me, one of you that's here is going to betray me. Now, let me tell you what happens. You read all the, all the accounts of the story. Here's what happens. They start thinking to themselves, who is it? They start looking around with judgmental eyes. Who's it going to be? Certainly not me. Certainly not me. Jesus would wash the disciples' feet at this time. And Peter would say, you're certainly not going to wash my feet. I need to wash yours. And Jesus says, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part in me. Then Peter says, well, then wash my whole head. And then Jesus says, you're going to deny me. He says, no, I'll never deny you. I'll die with you. He goes, by the time the rooster crows at 3 a.m. tonight, you will have denied me three times. You got to understand the context of this last supper. One will deny, one will betray, and 10 will leave. One of the accounts of the last supper says, quotes an Old Testament scripture that when the shepherd is struck, the sheep will scatter. And when it came to cross time, those disciples, except for John, were checked out. So the point I'm trying to tell you is that Jesus had some intensity going on at this last supper. So then he says in verse 26, Jesus, they're all saying, is it me, is it me, is it me? Another version says they started arguing who's the greatest because here's why. When you start getting into it's not me, self-preservation, shame, I'm okay, then you start thinking who's the greatest. They actually started arguing at the table of who the greatest would be. Not only am I not the betrayer, but you need to know Jesus is, I'm his favorite. That's what's happening. Put it into context. See, when I read the Bible, I try to put myself in it. I think to myself, what's happening here? It's pretty intense. What would it be like if I was there? And in verse 26, Jesus answered, says, the one I give the bread, that I dip it in the oil. Having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot. Now I want you to picture this. It would be wrong to call somebody out typically publicly in a group setting to front somebody out. You usually need to pull them. This is a good leadership principle, okay? But Jesus says, somebody here, can you imagine the, the intensity in the room cut the air like a knife? Somebody here is going to betray me. The person that I dip this, when I dip this and I hand it to the person, that person is going to be the one. Imagine if I whipped out a $100 bill and I started holding it in front of your face. And I said, the person that takes this $100 bill right now, that person is a betrayer. And everybody's watching. Why would Jesus do that? Because Jesus in his love and his kindness would give Judas one final opportunity to not make the choice and the decision because of perfect love. And that's what perfect love does. Perfect love does not want to see anybody perish or destroy, even if, they're, even if they are a betrayer. And that's contrary to what so many of you believe. But trust me, Jesus hands it to him. And think about it. You're all watching. And in that moment, Jesus hands it. And Judas 
grabs it and takes it. And then suddenly, Satan fills his heart. Next verse. Suddenly, Satan enters him and he's fully possessed. That had to be so intense. I don't know how to describe that. Have you ever been in a crowd and you had, they were looking at you and you said the dumbest, most stupidest thing that you should have never said and your heart just sank? Here's another great example of probably what that felt like. Have you ever been with a best friend or a family member and you're going to introduce them and forgot their name? Am I the only one that's ever done that? Because... And I'm telling you, because you're distracted. I'm, of course, they're your best friends, they're your family. But in that moment, you're so thinking about other things that you go to introduce them and it's like, <gasps> and you ha- it's like your stomach, the bottom fell out in your stomach and it just sank. That's what I picture that moment like. Judas makes the conscious choice. Jesus was offering him the bread of life and redemption in that moment. And Judas says, not going to be me, and takes the bread, bam, the devil comes right in. So, or, so Peter, or, uh, Judas gets up and leaves. He takes off. Think about this. I'm not going to read you the whole story, but in God's kindness, if you read this story, this is so cool. In the kindness of the Lord, as soon as Judas left, the Bible says that the disciples had no clue what just happened. And they said, they thought to themselves, he's the treasury guy. He must be going to buy some more food for the Passover. You know where he was really going. He was going to the chief priests and the scribes. But they still didn't get it. In God's kindness, he protected the situation. Why? So that fear would not enter into their hearts. Because you got to think perfect love. You got to understand God wants you to abide in his love. And so when Judas leaves... Jesus has a captive audience, and he says this. Having received the piece of bread, he went out immediately. I want you to jump to verse 34. And in verse 34, Jesus says, a new com- this is right after that interaction, a new commandment I give to you, that you what? Love one another. And by this, uh, or he says, that you love one another as I have loved you. By this all will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. He's talking about love here. He's talking about love between God's people. Of course, you're gonna love the people of the world. You've got to. But the greatest reflection of Christ on earth is how God's people love each other. When people come to Rock City Church, what I care more than anything is that they see and experience the love of God. I love the power encounters. I love the signs and wonders. But the Bible says that people can prophesy and cast out demons and Jesus still said, I don't know you. They'll know, the world will know by the way that we love one another and become unified. The greatest force to us changing Corpus Christi is not power encounters and lightning strikes, though I love them and will have them. It's love. Because when people see a unified front and a community of people that love well and live well and are united, it's an unstoppable force that people say, Jesus is in their midst. Because you can go start, minist- people start ministries on power encounters all day long. People go, oh, that's nice. That's nice. That's nice. But when they experience true love, it transforms them. And that's why Jesus would say, look at my example. Love is a verb.
a little old school DC talk for you. Love is a verb. Come on, guys, that was funny. You can laugh. I, I know you're in church. Love is a verb. Love is an action. And it's the actions of love that produce the feelings of love. And if you've come to the place where you've lost that love and feeling, we got to cue that up for another time, man. That, that's, we just got to. Love is a verb. So what would Jesus do? You want to learn to love. You got to learn to do what Jesus. See, when Jesus was washing the disciples' feet, Peter says, not me. And Jesus says, you don't understand what I'm doing now. But afterwards, you'll understand. And then after he washes their feet, you know what he says? Do what I do. Use me as an example. I didn't come to serve. I came. I didn't come to be served. I came to serve. And if you've got this warped perception where it's constantly about serving Jesus, you'll always be living as a servant and not as a friend. Because the Lord and John 15 is all about friendship. John, the Lord wants to reveal to you his life and his love and co-labor with you to ultimately serve the Father and honor the Father because that's what Jesus' mission was. He doesn't want you to always live as a servant slave. He wants you to become a slave to righteousness, but only he can help you do it. So he co-labors and he works with you and he teaches you how to love. Isn't that powerful? Romans 13. You can turn there. The premise of what I just read is that you got to do to others as Jesus did to us. Be an example as he was an example. Love is a verb. And there's got to be something else about clean feet in this whole thing. Because when your body's clean, it's only your feet that need washing. And the premise is that your feet will always be instructed to go. You'll always be led where you're supposed to go. So Romans 13, oh, no one, verse 8, oh, no, any debt. You're not supposed to be in debt, but you are supposed to have one debt. You got one thing that you owe and you're responsible for. Everybody has the same responsibility and everybody has the same debt if you call yourself a Christian and it's to love one another. For he who loves another fulfills the law. And then Paul would go on to say, whatever the commandments are, they're all summed up in this saying, love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 10, love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. John 1, 17 says the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And until you get born again, you're living under the law. And if you're not careful, you'll allow your soul realm to keep you unconverted, stuck in law mentalities instead of life mentalities. That's what religion will do to you. Break out and get free, everybody. It's a new day for all y'all. All right? John 15, verse 8, and I'm, I'm going to finish with this. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear fruit. So you, so you will be my disciples. The real picture of a disciple is fruit bearers. Yeah. If you're not bearing fruit, then you're not a disciple. Now, all kinds of world religions and new agers say that they love. Buddhists say that they love. So anybody could say it's all about love, love, love. The peace train. I'm riding the peace train right to Haight-Ashbury. San Francisco, here I come. Love, 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 love. But Jesus says, if you're going to really be my disciple, you're going to obey my commandments. Because if you look at this next scripture, the Father loved me, I love you. Do what I do. If you're going to love the way that I've called you to love, you must follow me and do what I do. 
And then he says, abide in my love. But how do you abide in God's love? Verse 10, if you keep his commandments. You've got to because love is a verb. We could have cued that again. That would have been fun. <laughs> love is an action. So com- by being obedient to what the Lord tells you, it distinguishes you from the Buddhists and everybody else because now I'm following biblical patterns and standards of being Holy Spirit led. And now I'm reproducing life in Jesus' name, which most of the people that say it's in God's name aren't. I'm telling you right now, there's a distinguishing factor that true disciples abide in God's love full-time. You know what abiding is? It's a habitation. It means you live there. Now, when you come to Rock City Church in worship, somebody hugging you, shaking you, you go, man, I felt love there. You, you have an encounter with the Lord and God draws you with his love. But to abide in his love is to stay there full time, not in, out, in, out. And the only way that you abide in God's love is that over the course of time, you stop doing some of the things that you used to do less and less and less. And now I fully become transformed and morally righteous and I'm abiding full time because I'm obeying full time. You got to get the revelation of that because it'll smack religion right in the head. You want to abide in God's love? You abide in God's love by obeying his commandments. And the only way you're going to know his commandments is to spend time with them and learn and be disciplined. Read your Bible, get in relationship, get in family, get measured. Let somebody measure your life. Stop being afraid and ashamed. Come out of hiding. Let somebody disciple you and speak into you and say, you know what? That's not biblical. And be okay with it. Instead of defending yourself, let somebody love you. If you get in a right culture, you're not afraid to come out of hiding. Tell the truth. Get it out. Say, you know what? You're right. Then we say, okay, brother, come on. Let's work on it. I'm in it for life. I'm in it for the long haul. I'm going to be committed to you. You'll get it. Keep sticking with it. I believe in you. I'm for you. And then people go, man, I know that you're a child of God. Verse 11, these things I spoke to you that my joy may remain in you. God wants his joy to stay full in your life. He wants you to be full of joy. I preached a whole message on the fullness of joy. You can hear it on the podcast. Where's the joy? Where's the fire? Where's the life? Where's the power? God doesn't want your religious piety and duty that's that's not full of excitement and energy and life-giving force. We don't go to church to appease our Christian conscience. We go because we want to know him. And do life together with people and community. He wants you full of joy. So he gives you a new commandment that you love. As he did it, you can do it. If he did it, you can do it. The only way you're going to do it is to do it the way he did it. And verse 17, these things I command you that you love one another. Now I would encourage you. I got to it at the first service. I didn't get to it today to read 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Particularly starting at verse 17. In 1 Corinthians 11, here's what you got going on. You got the Corinthian church having these public love feasts and calling it a Passover feast, calling it communion. And what they do is they'd go out publicly for everybody to see, and they'd have a smorgasbord of food and alcohol publicly, and they'd call themselves a church. Paul just lets them have it. It's like you get no prayer. He rebukes them, okay, because they're carnally minded, the Corinthian church. So go out publicly to celebrate the Lord, called it a love feast, and in turn, anybody that had position was getting a place of prominence. And the hungry and the poor and the needy needing life and needing healing was being pushed to the side. Here comes the pastor, everybody make way. I need bodyguards, get the door. I need the best seat at the front. Everybody move back and don't try to come talk to me. You need to go through 10 people to talk to me first. It's government Christian dysfunction. 
And what was happening was is people that had positions of prominence were getting the best seats and the best food. People were getting drunk. People were eating while other people were sitting there hungry. And then in the context of communion, Paul would say, this is why so many people are sick among you because you're not discerning the Lord's body. Communion is discerning the Lord's body, meaning I care more about you discerning the Lord's body. I used to always teach this, that you would be sick if you didn't discern the cross. And Jesus said, if you took communion with sin in your life, you'd die. That's religious dysfunction. Thank God he set me free of that. The whole context is a love feast and the fact that there was divisions. You know what the word for divisions is in the Greek? Heresy. You know what a heresy is? It means I pitted myself against you and I'm gonna take you captive. Meaning that my belief system stands against your belief system and I'm gonna win and I'm gonna captivate you. And that's where we also get the word heresy, Pharisee, Christian groups and sects of people that pit themselves against others that think they're right and staunch in their position. And that was happening in the Corinthian church. And so Paul would remedy it by saying, look at the last supper. Look what Jesus did. I'm going to give you the example. For I received what the Lord gave to me on the night he was betrayed. He broke bread and gave thanks. In the midst of his enemy, the betrayers, instead of looking around of who's the, who's the jacked up one, God cop central, what's your issues? Instead of me being the one trying to figure out who's going to be the betrayer and the denier, who's going to leave me, who's going to say, I love everybody well, whether you stay or don't, because I care about people no matter what. And so in the context of the Last Supper, communion, which we quoted all the time, he's saying the purpose of communion is to make a place so that people can have life and healing in their lives, not just a little cup and a little soup cracker. I'm just telling you, don't get upset at me. We'll still have cups and soup crackers because it's a reminder. And he said, as often as you do it, it's a remembrance. But you need to understand it's breaking bread and fellowship and intimacy, and it's making a way, not allowing pride and position and promotion. And what about me? They didn't, lo they didn't look at me. They didn't see me. I'm not identified in this church. They don't know what I'm capable of. Where's my ministry? I'm going to do this. I'm going to be a pastor. I'm going to be this. And that's why we teach you aren't what you do, you do what you are. You're discovered by your nature and your nature is child, daughter, son, disciple. Your nature is then becomes out of that evangelist, prophet, teacher, pastor, servant, hospitality. All of these are in the Bible, but you first become and then we identify out of relationship. And so Paul was saying in the context of communion that people were sick and dying because they weren't discerning. And so he says to do a couple things. Number one, Examine yourself. Everybody say, examine myself. Examine. You better check yourself before you wreck yourself. I'm not kidding. And he says, judge yourself and then wait. Instead of being rushing to the table, wait so that those that are hungry can have a place. God's always had a place for the hurting and the broken and the needy. And the church is supposed to reflect that. And Paul would conclude with this. He said, what you're doing is not for the better, it's for the worse. And you're actually despising God's church and you're holding people in shame. Here's why. I've come to get healing in life, but you put religious condemnation on me and now I'm in more shame than when I came. Powerful. Let's all stand. You have been listening to a message from David Bindet, senior pastor of Rock City Church in beautiful Corpus Christi, Texas. David's prayer is for a deeper understanding of God's love and purpose for your life. 
and that all of us would grow into a greater awareness of our identity in Christ. Thank you for listening, and until next time, stay fired up.